Go beyond the headlines and deepen your understanding of the forces shaping our world today on The Political Scene, a newly updated podcast from The New Yorker. With episodes three times each week, The Political Scene accesses the sharpest minds on politics, offering insight and analysis about everything from abortion rights to the war in Ukraine. Join me, Tyler Foggett, for conversations with the most knowledgeable minds from The New Yorker that will dive deep on the most interesting political story of the week. Then, Susan Glasser, Jane Mayer, and Evan Osnos gather to hash out what's happening in Washington, D.C., with an insider's understanding of the high stakes at this perilous moment for American democracy. Plus, our editor David Remnick will provide you with insightful storytelling with a mix of interviews and profiles. That's all happening on the political scene. Make sure you're following it now, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Jason Kander. Welcome to Majority 54. If you're a progressive in a red state or just a progressive who wants to keep talking with your friends and family from back home, I'm here to help you have those conversations. Because I think it's really important that you do. That you don't just throw up your hands and shut down. We're never going to win arguments that we don't make. And Majority 54 is here to help you make the argument. It's really crippling the the outcome that that provides. And so, like I said, 20 years ago, I got in and I said, look, this I'm never going to be a wealthy man, but I'm going to have a job that I love that matters and I'll be able to raise a family in a good community. I'm on board with that. Sign me up. I will serve my community in that way. And the economics of that have changed significantly in the last eight years to the point that I don't know that that package that they're presenting now is as appealing to new people wanting to get into this profession. And that's a real concern. That's my friend Steve Drosky, who sat down with me for this episode to talk about public education, particularly the way that it gets treated by politicians. This episode is pure fire. We covered everything from Betsy DeVos to how much teachers are paid to Steve's thoughts about school choice and a whole bunch more. Be sure, by the way, to listen to the very end for a behind-the-scenes conversation where Steve talks about the fear associated with using his platform. But first, I thought I would share some of the mail that we got about the Islamophobia episode. This email is from Brandon in Pensacola. Hey, Jason, I really appreciate your conversation this week with your friend Salam. It allowed me to reflect on my own experience going through basic training at the United States Air Force Academy. When I first arrived to the campus in Colorado Springs, I was assigned a roommate, and I was fortunate enough to be paired up with the first Iraqi student admitted to the academy. He and I would spend our time, however sparse it was during basic training, discussing the difference between his culture and religion and how it paralleled to the beliefs and values that I had as a Christian growing up in the South. It was impressive to me how a country boy from Athens, Georgia, and an Iraqi pilot from Baghdad could sit there and read their respective holy books and there not be a lick of tension in the room. Your podcast this week did an excellent job of highlighting a discussion that desperately needs to take place, so thanks for your service in the military and the conversations you're continuing to have today. Thank you, Brandon. I appreciate that a lot. It means a lot to me. And also, I hope you tell others this story, Brandon, because that's what using your platform is all about. Faraz tweeted at us, Jason, I enjoyed your Islamophobia podcast. As a Muslim immigrant and a father, it's been hard to watch people become numb to hate. You inspired me to write a short piece about how it feels to be a Muslim in America today, and I wanted to share it with you. Faraz, thanks for taking the time to share your perspective and, and to let me know about it. Nancy writes, Dear Jason, I listen to your podcast and enjoy it very much. You need, however, to improve your interview skills. They can be taught. Please get help. <laughs> That's the whole email. Thanks, Nancy. I'm, I'm trying to get better every day, I promise. 
If you want to send a personal story or thoughts about the show, you can either email majority 54 at gmail.com or you can tweet at Majority54. Okay, now let's get to the show. Y'all are going to love Steve. Let me give you some background. Steve spent 10 years as a social studies teacher, and his wife Katie teaches kindergarten. But they looked at their financial situation and their growing family, they've got three daughters, and decided it'd be best if Steve got his master's degree and became an administrator. So today he's an elementary school principal. Steve and I have remained close since college because, as you'll hear, in addition to being really smart and thoughtful about things, Steve's got a really big heart and a great sense of humor. He gave up his lunch break to sit in his office, the principal's office, and talk. Here's Steve. When I called you the other day uh, to ask you to do the podcast, uh, I was like, so what are you doing right now? (laughs) And you said, I'm dropping my kids off at school wearing a turkey costume. Yes. (laughs) Can you share a little more about the turkey costume? (laughs) Sure. So we have an annual event at our school, and it's an elementary school called the Turkey Trot. And the kids basically run laps for pledges. And um, they're trying to raise money. This time it was for technology. So we called it the Turkey Trot for Technology. And we weren't getting a lot of the pledges coming in. So I figured, let me, you know, raise the ante, try to garner some more interest. So I bought a turkey costume, full head to toe. Um, and I said, listen, I'm going to wear this turkey costume if you guys meet the uh, the pledge drive that we need to meet. <laughs> and uh, I, I walked around with it in the package and like showed it to the kids. Um, I, you know, I posted it on our Twitter feed. I would say gobble gobble during all of my announcements for a couple of weeks. And so it, it kind of picked up momentum. And then like parents, when they would drop off would say, we can't wait to see the Turkey costume. Um, so we raised over $7,000 in about two weeks. And uh, true to my word, then I wore the Turkey costume for the entire day. That was part of the sell. I said, I'm going to walk out of my house in my Turkey costume. I will drop my kids off at school any important meetings that I have to conduct. Uh, I went to the Board of Education office and had a meeting with my boss, the superintendent, in full turkey costume. Yeah. Uh, I went to Dunkin' Donuts and got coffee in my turkey costume. And, uh, you know, we put a bunch of the pictures of it on Twitter. It was a lot of fun. Um, it was not very warm. <laughs> so I'll prepare better next year if we do something like that again. But that's uh, a little snapshot in being an elementary principal is sometimes you have to wear a costume. Well, you don't have to. You just do it. That's true. Yes. You like your job. I do. I love my job. You had to raise $7,000 to pay for technology. What kind of technology? So we wanted to get a Chromebook cart. In New Jersey, we have our standardized testing is now online. Mm-hmm. So there's a greater need to have access mm-hmm. to easy technology that you mm-hmm. can just open up and the kids can log on to the application and take the test. You also want them to be comfortable using that apparatus. Mm-hmm. Um, so we find the Chromebook carts are really handy. Was there at any point some sort of expectation that you wouldn't have to raise money in order to do this? I mean, is there a grant program or what is? There are grant programs that you could explore, but it's time consuming and you don't necessarily want to rely on that. There's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about, given the tax bill debate that's going on, there's been a lot of stuff in the news lately about teachers who are spending their own money on school supplies in the classroom. Did you do that when you were teaching? I did. Um, I taught social studies, so... I, I didn't I didn't need as many bells and whistles, so to speak. My wife teaches kindergarten every year. She's um, going out to buy things. And I, I should say, I, as the principal now, I talk to my teachers a lot, like, let me know what you need. I might have money in my budget for that. But sometimes, you know, I'm, I'm writing my budget right now for next school year. Mm-hmm. 
they might not know what they need. And so if in October they find some kind of thing that they want to try out, some new type of grammar program that involves kids like drawing letters in sand, you know, people like my wife or some of our other high performing teachers, they're just going to go out and they're going to buy the supplies and they're going to figure it out on their own. Um, so I, we could provide those things if we need it, but a lot of times it's just quicker for them to go out and mm -hmm. do it themselves. So part of the point of that, though, I guess, is that that's something that high-performing, aggressive, like serious teachers do. It's mm -hmm. not It's not just a matter of there's uh, there's budget shortfalls. It's like it's a measure of teachers who are – Committed. Uh, yeah. Driven. And the idea that – so, I mean, because one of the things, and it's a little far afield from what we're talking about, but one of the things that is in this tax bill is that, um, you know, no longer allowing teachers to deduct that. Yeah. Right? Did you take advantage of that deduction yeah. when you did it? Right. And I mean, it, you know, for me, financially, I, I do my own taxes. Um, you know, it wasn't a major financial windfall, but sort of the, the message that that sends that like, yeah, you don't really need that. Um, I mean, listen, I'm not a tax expert by any stretch of the imagination. Maybe I shouldn't be doing my own taxes, but in looking at some of the talking points about that tax plan and the bullet points of what's being taken away, it's like, oh, I use that. Oh, I use that. Oh, I use that. Yeah. And, and you're just sort of um, befuddled because I kind of feel like I pay a lot of taxes to begin with. Um, and every uh, spring when I do my taxes, I'm, I'm kind of fingers crossed, hoping to get back a little bit more um, and I don't know if that's going to happen this year. Mm -hmm. You talked a little bit about, a few minutes ago when we were talking, you talked a little bit about sort of you, you switched from being a political science major, uh, somebody who was going to work on the Hill, to deciding you were going to be a teacher. And you said it was, uh, you went and you helped out in a philosophy class and that did it. But what was it about that that made you say, no, no, this is actually what I want to do with my life? I just feel very personally connected to education and that process. And even being a principal now where I'm not in the classroom as much as I was as a teacher, obviously, there's still this just strong sense of I'm making a real difference every single day. And I, I can feel that. And, I, and I, I know that's not the people that work in government and that spend time, you know, dissecting a 500 page bill on a Saturday, like they're making a difference, too. Um, I just couldn't see myself doing that. But you get to see the difference. Every day when I was a teacher, and I know this sounds, I always say like I'm from Ohio, so I'm kind of corny. And like people in New Jersey think that's really funny because I think they imagine that I like grew up on a farm, <laughs> yeah. even though, you know, I'm just from a suburb. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I, I, I play into it a little bit. Um, every day I felt like I made a difference. Every day there was like a moment and it might be something really simple or it might be something really profound. But every day I came home and I was like, okay, that was good. That was good. Mm -hmm. And even as a principal, Sometimes it's as simple as I tied a kid's shoe hmm. and sometimes it's something right. really serious. And, you know, that like little alarms going off on my head, like this is why you're here today. Like you got to help this kid. Um, and that's an awesome feeling. What's an example of something more serious than like the shoe tying, obviously? Had a parent come uh, intoxicated to school to pick up his child. Uh, had to figure out the right way to address that um, to make sure everybody was safe and also to kind of shield the child from uh, – you know, making that too much of a traumatic experience for the child. Mm -hmm. um, that's, that's a big one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I've always heard that there's a really high rate of teacher. I don't know. I don't know what the number is, how many years it is, but that there's a high rate of teachers not making it after such and such year and they go find another profession. Did 
did that ever happen for you where you were like, I don't know if I can continue in this? No, I've been like madly in love with this career <laughs> since I started. <laughs> <laughs> I know, but but financially, for instance, I mean, did you or, or Kate ever say like, I mean, you got three kids now. I mean, was there yes. a point where you said maybe we can't both stay in this profession? Well, that's where it's um, it's funny. In New Jersey, we really prided ourselves on having well-paid teachers, not wealthy. Um, you know, I go on vacation once a year, and it's a, to a place that I drive to. Um, I shop at the outlet mall when it's, when it's on sale. <laughs> but. I'm in a pretty high position at this point. My wife is is in a really great school district. This should be sufficient for us to, you know, have that essential American dream. Have have a, you know, a modest house, but a good house in a really good neighborhood. And I've got three kids, which is a lot. <laughs> but we have everything that we need. And um, I do think we have everything we need, but it's tight. And um, there's been a lot of changes in how they're funding education in New Jersey in the last eight years that have made it more difficult. Um, I'm at this point, like I said, pretty committed. Like this is what I'm doing uh, unless I become a major podcast star and then I can you know, do what you do all day. <laughs> You're on track. <laughs> if we could talk about some of the logistics of that because yeah. I think that's an important thing I'd like to share. Yeah. Tell me about that. Over the last eight years, there's been a lot of changes made by the Christie administration. How does that affect the lives of teachers? Okay, so the longer narrative is that back in the 70s and uh, early 80s, teaching was not really something that you could sustain a family on. So, you know, stereotypes aside, it was, well, you know, the wife can be a teacher, but the husband's got to be in a better paying job. Um, And they worked really hard. And when I say they, I mean, you know, people in the community and the teachers union to try to make the argument that you've got to make this a more attractive profession Um, for people. And in order to do that, it's got to be something that they can sustain a family on. So the salaries and the benefits and the pension for teaching went up dramatically uh, from the 70s to the late 80s, early 90s. And when you say dramatically, you don't mean, again, you were saying, it's not like people became wealthy teaching. It just became like, you could actually do this job. Yeah. I mean, there aren't teachers like driving around in Ferraris or anything like that. And I, you know, one of the jokes is like, oh, you get the summers off. Just about every teacher I know has some kind of side gig that they do in the summer, whether it's tutoring or I used to work at a recreation camp, um, summer school, lifeguarding. Mm -hmm. They all they work over the summer and it's not because they're bored. It's because they, you know, they They need need to make some money over the summer. I remember my history teacher had a landscaping company. Yep. I I know guys that do painting. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we have other jobs and Mm -hmm. I've got a lot of teachers now that have other jobs during the the school year as Mm -hmm. well. Um, well, tell me more about that during the school year. So they've got the super busy day during the day. And then during the school year, they're going to a second job doing what? Um, so I know a lot of them, they work at a restaurant one or nights, one or two nights a week. And part of the idea is that they want to kind of keep a place in that, um, that restaurant so that over the holiday break, when they need more people, then they can go in and they can work a couple more shifts or in the summer, then that's where they would work on a regular basis. That's the most common thing that I hear. Uh, Tutoring is another issue. But I can say for my purposes, you know, we've sat down, my wife and I, and said, gee, we could really use a little more, a little more money. Um, And my wife will say like, oh, well, maybe I can tutor. And I started thinking about the general logistics of having three kids in school. And by the time we get home and all the things that we do, and I'm like, you know, okay, it's just not worth it. Um, you know, whatever you're going to make, like, I don't think it's worth it for the time we have to give up being with our kids or the stress that would be involved in 
are already very stressful lives. Well, I mean, for one thing, I mean, your oldest is a first grader right now, right? Yes. So, like, homework is becoming a part mm-hmm. of the home. It's increasingly going to become a part of it. You kind of want to tutor your own kids. Yeah. Like, you want to do homework <laughs> with them and stuff. But I can't charge my kids, unfortunately. <laughs> That'd be a pretty good, uh, pretty good deal. <laughs> yeah, they'd be like, <laughs> I can imagine that. You know, Grace is like, Dad, I don't have the money to finish this assignment. <laughs> um, so if I go back to Dad, um, why are you still in a turkey costume? <laughs> um, back in 2009, I believe it was the first year of the Christie administration. There was a lot of outcry about how high property taxes are in the state of New Jersey, um, and they are high. Although I think if you look at some studies proportionate wise, um, they're not that bad, um, but it's still a pretty big chunk of change. Um, like if you're paying $8,000 a year in property taxes, that's probably pretty mm-hmm. good. And property taxes are are how, because you said it's all locally funded. So mm-hmm. that's how we're, that's how New Jersey funds education. Well, that's kind of like part. the double-edged sword um, that in order to have these really well-funded, well-operating, attractive schools, which is why a lot of people want to move to these commuter mm-hmm. suburbs that mm-hmm. we have. And that's really what a lot of New Jersey is, is it's suburbs for people who work in New York City or Philadelphia mm-hmm. and, and want to live in the suburbs. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to have that, you have to have the funding for it. And so the value of your property is kind of tied to the perceived value of your community, which is usually tied to the performance of the school. Um, and so the better funded the school is, um, the more bells and whistles that it has, mm-hmm. then, um, you know, the more attractive it is to people who might want to live there and pay mm-hmm. those those fees you mm-hmm. know, for the housing and, mm-hmm. and, and for the property tax. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. OK, I slowed your roll. Keep going. All right. So in 2009, during the first year of the Christie administration, um, there was this idea. We want to bring down property taxes, um, which everybody wants to do. Um, and there was this concept that the budget needed Mm -hmm. work like we don't have enough money to fund the budget so we gotta we gotta trim places and Mm -hmm. shared sacrifice was the term that was used a lot at that time Mm -hmm. and chris christie ran um unabashedly on a platform of teachers are essentially making too much money and there's a lot of um fat basically in the school budgets and that's what's causing your property taxes to be so high and that's why our budget isn't where we want it to be and i'm gonna fix that And a lot of people got behind Chris Christie. They found him refreshing. They liked that he told it like it was. Mm -hmm. And he wasn't going to kowtow to traditions like, oh, you got to you got to work with the teachers union because they're the powerful union in the state. And he said, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to do what I want to do. And if they don't like it, tough. Which might sound familiar to some people on a (laughs) national stage because someone ran a similar campaign last year. Um. Chris Christie tried to run that campaign, but someone did it better than him. (laughs) In any case, um, he flat out wouldn't meet with the teachers. And he said, like, I don't need to meet with you to get elected. And that's exactly what happened. He got elected without the support of the teachers union. So once Mm -hmm. he got elected, there was no sense of accountability that I have to do anything to cater to you or to work with you. Yeah, I remember videos of Chris Christie, like where he would do a town hall and there'd be a teacher and they'd challenge him and, and he would just yell at them. Yep. Do you really think that your child is now stressed out and unable to learn because they know that their poor teacher has to pay one and a half percent of their salary for their health benefits? Has any of your children come home, have any of them come home and said to you, mom, dad, please, 
Just pay for my teacher's health benefits and I'll get A's. I swear. But I cannot take the stress that's being presented by a 1.5% contribution to health benefits. Now, you're all laughing, right? This is the crap I have to hear. This is for real. And you're not compensating me for my education and you're not compensating me for my experience. That's well, you know what? Then you don't have to do it. I mean, you know, the simple fact of the matter is... The simple fact of the matter is this. Teachers do it because they love it. Well, that's, that's good. the well, only then, reason I do it. Well, and, and, you, and listen, and teachers go into it knowing what the pay scale that's is. Right. Teachers right. go into it knowing all that. I have to imagine that that has at least affected the way, it affected the morale of teachers. You know, the, what was hard about that was here was somebody on a very large stage being disrespectful, mean to our profession. And I don't doubt that there are some teachers who are not really effective, but the vast majority of them are really hardworking, good people from our community who serve this really valuable um, you know, role. Like, I mean, they're, they're essential to our democratic society. And to have somebody speak to them like that in such a condescending and arrogant um, and dismissive way was just hurtful to hear as a fellow educator. But then there was this sort of residual impact of, that guy got elected. <laughs> There's people who are like, yeah, sometimes he's a jerk, but you know, you got to tell it like it is sometimes. And well, I know that one teacher, I had that chemistry teacher when I was in high school and he used to read the paper and fall asleep while we did our lessons. And they can always give you that one example. <laughs> but I know so many people that just, they change lives every day. They're so impactful. They're so meaningful. And to have that just degraded, not only by the person who was doing it, you know, in, in, in Governor Christie, but then there's sort of like tangential support that this guy got elected and people talk like, oh, yeah, I like Christie. You know, I think he's shaking things up. He's doing this. And it's like, no, he's hurting us. Mm -hmm. Like, we're people. We're in mm -hmm. your community. Um, that had a real impact on us. It really soured uh, a lot of people and you know the the retort to that was ah toughen up you know don't be so sensitive um i one of the things he said that bothered me the most was you know well are they really gonna work that much harder or teach that much better if they have another thousand dollars in their pocket or something like that and just to you know what's to, the answer to that like how do you how would you answer that if he said it to you that's the problem with people like that is they create these arguments that are hard to argue. Mm -hmm. No, someone is not going to work harder or teach better if you give them an extra $1,000, if you give them $20, if you give them a bagel breakfast. But you do have to support them and you do have to invest in them. That's what you're communicating to them. So if you nickel and dime it and boil it down to your essence or you look at a budget sheet and you say, you know what? Steve Drosky's only getting 50 bucks on his tax deduction anyway for that paper that he buys or his school supplies. So eh, it's a drop in the bucket. What's the real big deal? We'll shave that off. No problem. Okay, fine. But then you're communicating to me that you value me a lot less. And that stinks. Diana is not feeling well. And I was like, you don't need to read the ads. And she was like, I can do it. I can do it. That's exactly what it sounded like. <laughs> and, uh, and then I realized a lot of you... <laughs> Probably just listen to hear her read the ads. So. 
With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. So you can rest (laughs) easy knowing your job is being seen by the right candidates. Then ZipRecruiter puts its smart matching technology to work. It's an infected uvula, by the way. I I have an infected uvula. I I should say, like about 50% of the people I say that to think it's something inappropriate and I'm sharing too much. It's the hangy ball in the back of your throat. Yeah, just the hangy ball. Just your usual hangy ball. Just your garden variety hangy ball infection. ZipRecruiter puts its matching technology to work, actively notifying qualified candidates about your job within minutes of posting, so you receive the best possible matches. It's no wonder 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. A lot of people are listening going, how do you even get an infected hangy ball? And then other people who are listening <laughs> and, and have kids are like, you have we a have kid. Kids. That's we, how have you a, we have a four-year-old. It's yeah. really easy to get all kinds of weird he stuff. coughs in your mouth. <laughs> it usually happens right before we take uh, holiday photos. Yeah, that's right. Pretty much every year. Mm-hmm. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by growing businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, our listeners can post on ZipRecruiter for free. It can't get better than that, Jason. Free. I mean, they could... Give you money, I guess. <laughs> Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. One more time, to try it for free, go ZipRecruiter.com slash 5-4. Jason, we get to read for one of our favorite sponsors. Sue. Yes. <laughs> I'm so excited about this. I've been doing supplemental research, okay? <laughs> I want to tell you about the benefits that I found that you can get from getting a massage. She's not a doctor. <laughs> I am not a doctor, but it can help you relieve stress and anxiety. It can help you sleep better. This is just some stuff from the internet. (laughs) Lower blood pressure. Like the benefits, well, there's a list of 25 things I found, but I'm sure there's many more. Soothe shows up with everything. They bring the table, the sheets, the oil, even the music, so you can unwind no matter where you are. Unwind. (laughs) My favorite part is that therapists can earn over three and a half times what they would make at a spa. So if a therapist were making like $31.50 an hour at a spa, Jason, what would they make? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm not doing math live. I just go, soothe. (laughs) That's what I do here. While maintaining incredible schedule flexibility, that means you can book a massage at 10 p.m. on a Wednesday. This brings the best therapist to the Soothe Network. Soothe Network. Soothe is in 50 cities, including most major U.S. cities, and you can book a massage as soon as today. Our listeners are getting a special offer that's going to get you $20 off your first massage when you use our code 54. Just download the Soothe. Soothe. S-O-O-T-H-E. App in the iOS App Store or Google Play Store, and be sure to use our code 54 to get $20 off your first massage. Soon. Soon. <laughs> Spa quality massage anytime, anywhere. Oh, yeah. Give me an example of something specific that the Christie administration did that has directly affected teachers. They took benefits, which is something that teachers have had. And again, that was part of the package. Like, you're going to work for us, and we're going to give you health benefits mm-hmm. for your entire life. Mm-hmm. 
they went from teachers paying a very small portion of their salary towards those benefits to now, again, this idea of shared sacrifice. Most teachers are paying around 30% of their salary towards their benefits. Wow. That is 30% that they were not paying in the past. Mm-hmm. So I want you to imagine, you know, whatever you do for a living, if all of a sudden it's a 30% pay cut, a 30% pay cut in what you take home. And I think I'm like a lot of Americans where, you know, my debt to income ratio is pretty tight. 30% makes a big difference. Um, That was done to every teacher. Again, under the idea of shared sacrifice. But I don't think people realize like the nuts and bolts or dollars and cents of how that's impacting individual people. Who are the teachers supposed to be sharing their sacrifice with in this shared sacrifice plan? Well, the idea is that you know, under previous administrations, promises were made that couldn't be kept. You know, the government budget had swollen to uh-huh. a point that, you know, we've got these teachers making too much money and they've got these Cadillac uh, health care plans and they've got these rich pensions. And so, you know, it's a little out of control. We need to rein it in a little bit. Right. And 30% I, I, I think that's kind of fair. Like, I don't I don't disagree mm-hmm. with that. Mm-hmm. But again, there's this lack of trust. And part of what is is, is an issue there is not only did they take 30 percent of our pay, they also said to the school systems, well, you can only increase your budget by 2%. So even if a school said, hey, we really want to invest in our teachers, and so we're going to like, we're going to offset that 30%, and we're going to you know, push up their salaries a little bit to try to stay competitive or really reward our mm-hmm. teachers, they can't even do that because the state said you can't go up more than 2%. Right. It gets worse. <laughs> <laughs> this pension that we pay into automatically, again, shared sacrifice, the state government wasn't paying into. They were pulling out of it to pay for other things, but they just flat out weren't making payments. And so this idea of shared sacrifice feels a little flimsy when we're the ones making the sacrifice. And when it comes to the government, and and we even went to court with Chris Christie about this, saying, hey, well, you got to pay into the fund too. And he was like, no, don't need to. And it was as simple as that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's just, it's really crippling the the outcome that that provides. And so, like I said, 20 years ago, I got in and I said, look, this I'm never going to be a wealthy man, but I'm going to have a job that I love, that matters, and I'll be able to raise a family in a good community. I'm on board with that. Sign me up. I will serve my community in that way. And the economics of that have changed significantly in the last eight years to the point that I don't know that that package that they're presenting now is as appealing to new people wanting to get into this profession. Mm-hmm. And that's a real concern. So we talked about your financial situation a little bit. Um, do you still have loans from school? <laughs> I do. Yeah, and, and so does Kate? Um, Katie does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we benefited from <laughs> some inheritance, mm-hmm. essentially. Um, but I, I actually have my undergraduate loans still, and I've held on to them uh, because the, the interest rate, I was able to lock into a pretty good interest rate. The graduate programs that I went to was all out of my own pocket, mm. um, which made it really difficult to then save up. So we just bought our first house now uh, at age 37 with three kids, uh, whereas, you know, some of my peers, they they bought a starter home, you know, right out of college or, or 10 years ago. And we, we waited a significant amount of time because all of my extra money was going towards paying for tuition. Mm-hmm. And, and you still have a, a I mean, how much can I ask how much debt you have? $20,000. Okay. Um, my, so, my, my goal is to pay off my student loans before I have to start paying for my daughters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I got about 12 years. Gosh. <laughs> How's that looking? You know, it's best not to think about sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So 
there's obviously a lot of controversy about Betsy DeVos. Uh, but let me start with why is or is not the Department of Education important in what you do? It's a great question. Um, at the federal level, it is more of a figurehead position, I would say. But as we've learned, you know, both in my experience with the Christie administration and with our, our current administration in the White House, that does matter. Messaging matters. How things are framed, it creates a perception which then allows certain policies to take place. Um, there's a real buzz right now, and I think it's actually on both sides of, of the political aisle that you know we need to make schools more competitive. We need to be more creative with schools. Charter schools are the way of the future, and. I have a hard time, you know, the way I try to frame it is a lot of people have seen the movie The Blind Side mm -hmm. and they love that movie and it's great, but it's kind of like seeing The Blind Side and thinking, oh, the way we solve problems in urban environments is just get Sandra Bullock to adopt everybody mm -hmm. and let them play football and the problem will be solved. Mm -hmm. So my issue is I'm not opposed to charter schools or more creative approaches to the, you know, the financial institution, excuse me, the educational institution. But to think that that is the sustainable solution for this larger institution is it's fool's gold. So you're, what you're saying is is that should be considered as a part of the overall strategy, but it's not a cure-all. Exactly. And I think that's where it gets a little bit twisted. And a lot of resources and a lot of messaging is poured into this idea. And, and there are some great charter schools. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to deny the impact that those schools can have. But there's a lot of lousy ones, too. And the... The things that they do and the rules that they play by are so significantly different from what we do as a public institution that it's really apples and oranges. Um, so you don't want to lose sight of that and say like, well, hey, like, look at this great school. Why don't we just do that with every school in America? Again, it's like, look at Michael Orr. What a great success story. Sandra Bullock, go out and adopt some more kids. Like, mm -hmm. It just doesn't work that way. Mm -hmm. We have to think a more sustainable, um, appropriate solution. It's always seemed to me that charter schools – were at least in their conception supposed to be sort of a laboratory, right? Like it's not like you were going to turn every school into a charter, but when you have a successful charter, there are lessons you can take from that that then you can sort of push out to all the other traditional publics and some of them take it up, some of them don't. But your point is, is that when you make every school the laboratory, that doesn't make any sense. That's that's an issue. Um, and and the, the success rate and the failure rate for charter schools is pretty, you know, pretty high. So is businesses. And that's where like mm -hmm. I get a little uncomfortable when we talk about how much, you know, the the acumen of business needs to be applied mm -hmm. to public institutions like education, because in business, it's accepted that things are going to fail. Mm. That's not acceptable in schools. Mm -hmm. um, we can have struggling schools. We can have schools that need to improve. We cannot have failing schools. Mm -hmm. And no matter what people want to tell you that our schools are failing, they're not. So that's where I get a little concerned. The other issue is. And, and you probably can appreciate this as someone who worked in, you know, state government. Mm -hmm. There's an economics of this. The problem that I have with school choice or the concern I have with school choice is you're robbing Peter to pay Paul. You're taking, you know, what is considered the tuition rate for a particular student and you're now giving it to another school. I'm all on board about that other school existing. That's great. But now you're having a negative impact on the school that just lost that kid. That's problematic. We are working off of razor thin budgets to begin with. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, an analogy I would give is if your kid goes over to a friend's house um, and hangs out for a while and sleeps over and has dinner and breakfast, it would be like if your friend's parents sent you a bill. 
and said, all right, well, Timmy came over to our house. And so here's how much we spent on pizza. And here's the prorated charge of the electricity and the water bill and our mortgage and uh, and the breakfast and our insurance rate. And uh, we're going to bill you for that because we took care of your kid for 12 hours. And the problem with that is, is, well, I already bought groceries and I still have my mortgage and I, you know, I still have a bedroom mm-hmm. for Timmy that I have to pay for. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from an economic standpoint, it doesn't add up. Yeah. What's really interesting about what you're saying is, is I think that the school choice conversation has traditionally been an either or conversation, right? Which to its detriment, right? Because it's been a conversation about uh, we have uh, X amount of money. And so then everybody's arguing over whether they can make charters work with traditional publics given that amount of money. But what you're saying is not we shouldn't have charters. What you're saying is that's great. You want to give kids more opportunity. You want to experiment with these things. I'm all for it. But how about we just make sure that we fund that as well instead of funding that instead of? Correct. We, you know, it can't be a zero-sum game, and that's what it is right now. It's, it's we're going to take away this to put in here. You're crippling you yeah. know, something that's really important. And and that's where I, I think we have to be more honest with ourselves about what we're doing with our public funds. I don't think people realize the, again, the practicality and, and, and it's a good thing. We should be funding special education, uh-huh. but it's very expensive. Yeah. And so when you sit down and you spit out an algorithm and you say the average kid costs this much money, like, you know, $11,000 or something like that. And that's the tuition rate for them. All kids do not cost the same amount of money. Their programs do not cost the same amount mm-hmm. of money. Um, I have special education students who not only are in a class with their regular teacher, there's a special ed teacher assigned to it as well. There is a one-to-one classroom aide or what we call a paraprofessional assigned to them. I have a behaviorist. I have a child psychologist. I have a case manager. I have a physical therapist. I have an occupational therapist. Um, I I have a whole team. And that's what that kid deserves. And and that's Mm -hmm. what we need to do to help that child have a good education. But I just rattled off to you a 10-person team that goes into our personnel budget. Mm-hmm. You have to fund that. Mm-hmm. You have to be aware and honest about what you are promising to your society and then how you are going to fulfill it. I think there's people that have, like the current administration, like Betsy uh, DeVos, like mm-hmm. this ulterior motive that they're really driven to really push this issue. And to them, it's I feel it serves the mm-hmm. narrative that, oh, the public schools are a mess. They're crumbling. Well, yeah, well, you're the one taking away a lot of the things that we need to sustain it. Uh So, you know, let's have an honest conversation about this. And the the big frustration I have and a lot of educators have is we're not involved in those conversations. Mm -hmm. So you don't have people involved in actual public schools having these conversations about budget and about policy. We're just given all of these things and then we have to adapt. And that's a very frustrating um, as a practitioner. Politically, it's kind of a divide and conquer because it it pits – people in education against each other. I mean, it, it, it pits, I mean, there's really dedicated teachers at the charters. There's really dedicated teachers at the, at the traditional publics. I mean, you got your start at a private school. Correct. And, and it's pitting all of these people who have the same goal, which is to educate kids against each other because of their limited resources. But iron sharpens iron and competition's really good for bringing out the best (laughs) in everybody. And these are the kind of things that we need to have in our schools. We can't just have these, you know, factories of mediocrity that just let people be good enough. (laughs) Like that's the kind of garbage that gets promoted and people buy it because like, oh yeah, that does make sense. We should have competition. Not in schools. I'm sorry. Like these are kids. They're There's not, a real need here. There needs to be a constant. They're not widgets. They're kids. Exactly. Also, I've always wondered about this. Like when you make it about competition. Well, first of all, I think you make a great point that when you make it about competition, 
that means they're automatically have to be losers and you can't have some of the kids lose. You can't have kids who are like, well, education is not going to work out for you. But also I don't know a whole lot of people who go into teaching because they're just really competitive. <laughs> you know? Yes. I mean, I don't, I just don't, I've never met anybody who's like, I became a teacher because I want to make sure that my school that I work in is better than any other school in the area and that every other school looks terrible compared to the school where I work. It's just as an aside. Correct. We we have pride. We want to be really successful. We want to do really well, but there is not a competitive element. And that's, it's not sports. There's no scoreboard. You know, there's test scores, but yeah, there, there isn't this way, the way you know that you're doing well, that you're a success, that you're hitting a figurative home run is when you have those moments with those kids. Mm-hmm. That's when you know you're making an impact. And like, that doesn't show up in a ledger sheet. We talked about whether or not uh, there's a tangible impact from uh, the Federal Department of Education and its policies upon schools. Do you hear teachers talk about Betsy DeVos, for instance? When she was appointed, yes. Um, and it went through the news cycle, and then we all kind of moved on with the day-to-day work of our lives. Um, I was texting with a buddy of ours who's a little more conservative, and he was saying, ah, she might have some good ideas. You know, she's got a good background in business and things like that. And I said, listen, you're a fan of the New York Giants. And so I want you to imagine that, you know, when they got rid of Tom Coughlin, they hired a high school baseball coach with a losing record. And they were like, this person has a lot of really good ideas. We want them to coach the New York football giants. And then at the opening press conference, they started asking the coach about routes and defenses, and they didn't even have a basic knowledge of how football works. Mm -hmm. How would you feel as a fan of the New York giants if your ownership hired that person to run your team? You might be worried they'd bench Eli Manning. For instance, they've been talking about it quite a bit. (laughs) No, I mean, (laughs) maybe they would have had better luck this year if they hired a high school baseball coach. But I'm a Cleveland Browns fan, so I have no ground to stand on. (laughs) I ruined your analogy with a stupid joke. No, I think that's a I think that's a great analogy. And so would it be fair to say that the reaction from the teachers was initially not just one of like concern about whether or not she knew what she was doing, but almost it sounds to me like it's almost sort of like. This is insulting that you think this is what it takes to lead our profession. Yeah, I think from an educator standpoint, that's how it was like, oh, and we've been dealing with this for a while. Again, this is not mm-hmm. new. Here we go again. We got another successful, wealthy business person who thinks they're going to, quote unquote, fix education, and they know very little about the subject. Mm-hmm. Great. Mm-hmm. Good pick. Mm-hmm. Now, for me, that speaks to the larger judgment call of the administration of the type of people that they choose to hire or mm-hmm. appoint who seem to lack basic knowledge of the jobs that they're doing from like education specifically, I think, you know, everybody will agree. That's a frustrating point Uh that you're putting people in charge of the decision-making process, or at least putting people to represent us that don't get us. Yeah. So the, the counter argument to Betsy DeVos's lack of experience in public schools is that bringing in somebody with a fresh perspective can really shake things up in a positive way, but you clearly don't agree. Well, I'm not opposed to that idea. I, I think a fresh perspective can be helpful. And even within the um, the educational world, like I've benefited from coming from other school districts and other buildings. And I have a different perspective that I think, you know, informs me and helps my, my school do better. So you can have those like fresh perspectives or different perspectives. Uh, the guy that does Khan Academy is a great example of that. It's just those can't be the only people 
in the room. Those can't be the only people trying to drive change and, and work towards improving things. You've got to have some people at the ground level and some people who know more about, you know, the complexities of this institution. Um, otherwise, you're just kind of shooting in the dark. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that I think happens is in the politicization of education that uh, there's sort of this phenomenon of saying, well, why isn't this school performing like this school? And you kind of alluded to this, given the fact that it's funded at a similar level, given the fact that uh, in this district, students uh, are getting about $20,000 per student is what the school is allotted funding wise versus in this district where they're doing much better. It's, you know, eight or $9,000. It just has always seemed to me that that is just sort of blind to the fact that there's a lot of stuff going on outside the four walls of the school. So what are some of the things out there that when you see it debated, other policies that aren't strictly education, and you think that's going to have an effect upon what happens in the school? So again, it's being honest about what you're trying to provide. And so there's plenty of studies that show it is significantly more expensive to fund education in an urban or lower economic environment. But there's reasons for that. It's not just that those schools don't know what they're doing. Mm -hmm. Um, If you want to help students, you know, let, let's say if I have a kid right now who needs extra help with their homework or they need extra help reading, there are some parents who can provide a tutor for that child. Uh, there are kids who just, frankly, are at home when the child comes home. And so they can work with them and they can read to them. Mm-hmm. There are other kids who go home and there's nobody there or there's a grandma there who doesn't speak English. They're not getting the same support network at home that the other kids are. And that's not anybody's fault. Yeah, let's let's be clear. It's not like what you're not saying is because, look, they don't have the same sort of strong family commitment. Like, I think what you're saying is they have like two jobs. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing. Like, I, I work with a lot of these parents. They're awesome people. They work really hard. They just, they're not home as much as some other people are. They don't have the same wherewithal, the same discretionary income to provide additional support. I can't tell you how hard it is to have a conversation with a parent about their child struggling. And they say, well, what other help can they have? And I say something like, well, my teacher can work with them after school for about a half hour. Okay, but my kid takes the bus. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, your town provides busing to get my kid home. If my kid doesn't take the bus, how is my kid going to get home? Mm -hmm. So now my kid can't stay for extra help. Right. You know, and, and they realize you see the light bulb go off and it's, it's, it's soul crushing Mm -hmm. when they say, wow, I need to help my kid. And I can only do so much or I can't. Mm -hmm. And again, it's not because they don't want to or they don't know what to do. There's just there's just an ability there that that they don't have. It's just logistics. It is. And that's that's really hard. And I don't think people and I'm working in a a nice town. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not working in one of these, you know, really difficult uh, urban environments where every kid's going through something like this. Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, these are realities that like every kid has to deal with and. You know, the school by extension is trying to support people from different different advantage points mm-hmm. and to you know clump them all together and, and spit out an average of performance is just, you know, short sighted. Mm-hmm. So let's say uh, tomorrow you become the secretary of education. What are you going to do? <laughs> all right. So I, I don't think we need to fix education. That's the first thing I would say. I think we need to really do a better job of understanding the benefits of this institution. Um, And that sounds like overly political, like we got to sell people on the idea. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, there was that great um, scene in the movie Dave 
where they find out that they're funding, you know, advertisements for American made cars. Mm -hmm. And he says, you know, like, whoa, so we're spending money to make sure people feel better about their Ford. Yeah. Like sometimes (laughs) that stuff matters. Um, You know, we want people to feel good about the investment that they're making. So I think we've got to just shift the viewpoint and really drive home the positive things that are happening in education. Then we got to have an honest conversation about the cost and how it's related to what we really want to accomplish. One of the challenges that we've had in education is that we've had a major shift in the last three to four decades in how many people are supposed to go to school, how long they're supposed to go to school, and what they're supposed to go to school for. 40 years ago, lots of people that go to school now weren't expected to go beyond high school, if that. And when they got out of high school, you know, they were doing a trade, they were doing something else. We kind of all bought into this Kool-Aid that like, we're going to send everybody to college. Well, that's a great idea. Now we got a bunch of people with, you know, philosophy degrees working at Starbucks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if we want to have an honest conversation about what our workforce looks like, what our society looks like, and then what tools we need to provide them so that they can have a sustainable option that helps us, um, that's kind of what we need to do. What you're saying is, one, you got to convince people that it's a worthwhile investment because, two, you need to invest more. Yes. There's a really good study that's been going on since the 60s, and I think it's in Tennessee, where they tracked a cohort of kids who went to preschool or were provided preschool mm-hmm. for a year or two, and a cohort of kids who were not provided a year or two of preschool. Mm-hmm. And the data is staggering. When you look at the likelihood or the... Um, yeah, the likelihood that the child who missed out on the, that year or two of formative education funded by the state, um, they're more likely to perform poorly economically, to get involved into crime. And, and the amount of societal cost that there is mm-hmm. over a four-decade period is staggering. But We don't think like that. We just think about like, well, how's the school doing today and what's my tax bill look like? Mm-hmm. And so we really have to be honest and think about what investment we're making and why it really benefits everybody, not just for my town to have a good school, but for you know cities across the country to have good schools. It benefits us as a whole. But you know that that that's a pretty big conversation to have. I mean, one way to look at it is if you invest in early childhood education, or which is a fancy way to say preschool, you invest in preschool. Uh, then later you're not going to have to invest as much in prisons because they what build prisons based on third grade reading levels, right? Mm-hmm. And so therefore. If you're the if if you're the taxpayer, like you can either invest in prisons or you can invest in preschool. So, and I guess that's where there's this really hard conversation of what is the value of these institutions, and do we trust our government to shepherd them? Mm-hmm. You know, we have all you know. I'm, I know about schools. You know about the military, the intelligence industry, mm-hmm. things like that. You know, um, our buddy Sam knows about the healthcare industry. Mm-hmm. These things matter, and I think sometimes we take them for granted because we weren't here when they didn't exist. Mm-hmm. My father was a Marine. He did three tours of duty in Vietnam, and when I was five years old, he uh, he had a mental breakdown and went on disability for the rest of his life. Mm-hmm. My mother was a uh, school teacher in Cleveland. Mm-hmm. We survived because of government funding. Mm-hmm. I went to college because of government funding. I took out loans, but I also got grant money. Um, I am an educator. My wife is an educator. We are products of these institutions, and we are proof that it works and has a benefit. So I have a skewed perspective about preserving and promoting them. There are other people who don't have the same story that I have. 
they didn't rely on government assistance growing up or don't participate in it now. And so I think they have a more cavalier attitude about the benefits of those institutions and those programs because they don't see that how they benefit from them because they don't need them. They don't rely on them. And that's something that if I could try to, you know, get other people to understand and, and get them to have more empathy for the people like myself who grew up needing those things, they matter mm-hmm. and they, they benefit and they change lives. Um, so that's why I'm a real big, firm believer in public education. I don't think it needs to be fixed. I think it's like a child. It needs to be nurtured. It needs to be supported. It needs to be promoted and put in a position to succeed. And, you know, that's my way of trying to contribute to this great country. Awesome, man. Thanks. I really appreciate you doing this. I, I know you had some reservations about it. One of the challenges we have, this is an apolitical position. This can be for the podcast if you want, whatever. Unless you don't want it to be. Well, here's the problem. Like, if you don't want it to be, let's have a conversation off the this, After I was like, oh, yeah, sure, I'll do it. Then I'm like, are we stop recording? Yeah, sure. Let's keep recording. Well, and yeah, he knows you if you, you know, I won't use anything you don't want me to. I, I, so, you know, you may live, say something great. So we have a very good, strong community here. And, and so it's not as divisive as it might seem in other parts of the country. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was very conscientious as a history teacher to not not institute bias as best I could. Mm-hmm. When I, I, I taught um, political elections from, you know, Bush's reelection up to Obama's reelection and tried to like boil down the topics to the kids in like meaning manageable chunks mm-hmm. that were without bias. But it's so hard to do without, you know, you just don't want to skew one way or the other because right. then I think you lose some of your credibility as an educator. So as a principal, I really struggle with this because I had this awesome position where I influenced so many people in my community. But I have this whole other side of me that like feels really strongly about certain things Mm -hmm. going on in our country or about politics. Mm -hmm. And I don't really have a mechanism with which to share that. Mm -hmm. So when you invited me to be on the show, Mm -hmm. I was like, well, I want to be very careful here. I don't want to, you know, I want my community to feel like I am their principal. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm not just like the Democratic principal or the Republican principal, Mm -hmm. whatever the case might be. But I know education. So mm-hmm. I can sit here and I can talk to you about education and I'll, mm-hmm. I'll throw in a few things. Nobody likes Christy at this point anyway, so that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But it's hard, you know, because yeah. you are operating. I know a big thing you've been selling on is like, you got to start the conversation. You got to have the conversation. Mm-hmm. It's hard for me mm-hmm. um, because I'm not sure when and where and when the appropriate time is. Right. We have a local superintendent. He's my wife's superintendent. And after the um, issue in Charlottesville happened, he wrote this awesome letter mm-hmm. and sent it to the whole community. It was mm-hmm. all about, you know, just being being on the right side of things and, um, you know, basically like Nazis are bad. And he, he's he's Jewish and he's had some experience with, mm-hmm. you know, some, some negative treatment based on his religion. And he wanted to share that with his community. Mm-hmm. And my wife was like, that is awesome. Would you do something like that? And I had to say, I don't know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that would be the right thing for me to do, you know, in my current position or where I am. And that's a hard thing to wrestle with mm-hmm. um, because I got a job to do here and, and, and it's a really important job. And, you know, I, I would hate to go too far off one track, you know, in terms of you know, my own political beliefs and have mm-hmm. that then compromise the ability for me to do this job. Well, it also, I think, speaks to going back to Christy for a second. You got to wonder if Christy and the other folks who, who go after public school as a punching bag if they kind of know that, right? Yeah. I mean, one of the sort of themes that's been 
interestingly developing in the people that I'm talking to um, has been that a lot of the folks who are on the receiving end of this sort of treatment from people like President Trump or Governor Christie is it's a population that doesn't have the luxury in their position of standing up and saying, no, you're wrong. Correct. And so what you're talking about is, you know, it's pretty hard for a public school principal to stand up to a governor. And the governor probably knows that. Yep. And we had some people that did that. And those were people who had been in the industry a lot longer than I have and were entrenched in their communities and knew they had, you know, some sense of job security. Mm -hmm. And, you know, my town loves me. I love my town. You know, Mm -hmm. this is like a wonderful place for me to work. But, you know, I'm still new. And it's Mm -hmm. like, all right, I'm not quite ready to to be that vocal Mm -hmm. yet. Well, I appreciate that you did this. Sure. But that, so, that's like a real issue. It's hard. I think, I'm glad you it's talked really about it. It's really like, and it eats at me. Yeah. The holidays are the busiest time of year. You got to run from doctor to doctor, figuring out what a uvula is. You got to <laughs> get your holiday gifts. You got to fix that woodpecker hole in the side of the house. You really hate that bird. I mean, how can you get rid of a woodpecker? You can't do anything to them. He's kind of in your head now. We're waiting for winter to come. <laughs> <laughs> You don't have time to go to the post office. So what we do is go to Stamps.com instead. Stamps.com brings all the services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your fingertips. I knew we had really made it and we're actually podcasting for real when we got Stamps.com as a sponsor. Because <laughs> like every podcast I listen to, it's Stamps.com. That's amazing. I'm so excited and you should be too because they bring all the services of the U.S. Postal Service to your fingertips. You can buy and print official U.S. postage, any letter, any package, any class of mail using your own printer and computer, and then the mailman just picks it up. It's so easy. They send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the exact postage. It's like a little buddy right there telling you exactly how much you need, and then they help you pick the best class of mail every time. How do you think Stamps.com figured out that everyone who listens to podcasts also apparently sends a lot of mail? We are we are simpatico. They have very deep, deep testing. It just seems like people. an interesting crossover. It's <laughs> impressive analysis. And right now, you too can enjoy the Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and the digital scale. <laughs> I mean, it just keeps giving. I'm with, glad you're excited. Yeah, I'm so excited. Without long-term commitments. Just go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in 5-4. That's stamps.com in 5-4. Man, I love that dude. I really appreciate Steve doing that. Normally, this is the part of the show where we play the most common deceptive talking points on the issue and then I respond to them. But the conversation with Steve was so thorough that I really feel like he's mostly done my job for me already. So instead... I'm just going to share with you a few thoughts that I have about the debate that we're having in America over public education. That clip that we played where Governor Christie asked if a teacher is really going to do that much worse if they're paid less or has less health care, that reminded me of how a lot of conservative politicians talk about anyone who works in public sector jobs. There seems to be a mentality that says anyone who does is there because they weren't talented enough for the private sector. And that perception is often mixed in with a feeling that it doesn't matter at all who actually does public sector jobs. When I served on the Budget Committee in the Missouri House, there was this one amendment that I and others had to work to kill every single year. The Republicans had decided that no one in state government should get paid a higher salary than the lieutenant governor. Their reasoning was that if that salary was enough for the number two most powerful person in the whole organization, 
then it should be good enough for everybody. No matter how long they'd worked there, no matter their function or their education or their experience, they should not be allowed to have their salary exceed the lieutenant governor's salary. We had PhDs and MDs and disease scientists working at the departments of health, of agriculture, of conservation that would have been subject to this. The lieutenant governor, by the way, made $80,000 a year. And in Missouri, the lieutenant governor was the only statewide position that was part-time. Most lieutenant governors in modern history have had another full-time job, yet this $80,000 was the most that they thought any full-time worker in state government should ever be paid. But all of this was a function of these conservative politicians believing that it doesn't matter who fills a government position anyway. Unless that government position was elected, then it mattered to them a great deal. I think that attitude toward public employees pretty well sums up the way a lot of these same politicians view teachers. Now think about your favorite teacher growing up. Think about how he or she changed your life. Think about what different direction you might have taken if not for that teacher. Now ask yourself if it mattered for you who was standing in the front of that classroom. It matters that we recruit the best people. It matters that we pay them a decent wage. My biggest takeaway from this conversation with Steve is that teachers and schools in general are an investment, not an expense, an investment. We spend money instead of making kids and teachers raise it because we get something back for it. And when it comes to this issue, one of my frustrations is both parties pitting teachers against each other to try and win the debate. Teachers are there for the kids, whether they teach in public schools or charter schools or frankly anywhere else. Just like Steve, they go home feeling good or bad based on whether they made a difference that day, whether they saw that light bulb go off for a little boy or just whether they got to stop and help a little girl tie her shoe. And as we invest fewer and fewer dollars in our literal future, we're forcing educators to fight over what we give them rather than just tell us what they need to accomplish the mission that we're putting in front of them. Now, as you could tell, Steve was a little hesitant to have this conversation, and it took courage for him to sit down with me and be so candid. But it's what all of us need to do. I'm always telling you to use your platform, but I don't mean that you've got to go so far that you get fired from your job or you push away your loved ones or you just become a pariah at work. But we can't settle for just letting the politicians on TV scream talking points back and forth at one another and then think that's going to make the difference either. We have to have loving, respectful conversations with people who disagree with us. I'm literally asking you to do this for your country. Because this gets done one American to another, one at a time. We're living through a scary time in the country, and it feels like the water is rising all around us. You can hang your head or you can grab an oar. Grabbing an oar is better. Thanks again for listening. We put Steve's Twitter handle in the show notes so that you could say hi and also so that you could see a picture of him in a turkey costume. And if you don't mind, take a moment and rate Majority 54 or write a review in the iTunes store or wherever you go to listen to me say, Soothe. Seriously, the ratings and the reviews help because a lot of people look at that when they decide whether to listen. I'm Jason Kander. This is Majority 54. Remember, we all have a platform. Make sure to use yours today. Talk to you soon. Hi, listeners. It's Robbie with a question for you. What if instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're on the cusp of a better world? For that answer, I recommend listening to the What Could Go Right podcast. 
Each week, Progress Network founders Zachary Carabell and Executive Director Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from elections to climate change, and make the case for a brighter future with guests like Harvard Professor Arthur C. Brooks and California State Senator Robert Hertzberg. Progress is on the way. Find out on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts.